we at today? What is today? Wednesday? And uh, we've been here a couple of days. Before here, we were at our church camp for a few days. And before that, uh, we had a baby. I believe here Friday, Saturday, I'm doing a wedding. So like many of you, I'm a little under the weather, but I'm also sufficiently medicated. So I really can't take responsibility for the rest of the things that I say for the remaining (laughs) period. So take it all with a grain of salt. Uh, let's, uh, Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank You that we can come and gather and fellowship and learn one from another, that we, Father, can have the normal distractions and those mundane things that subdue our thoughts and our efforts swept aside for a time and bring our thoughts, Father, upon You and upon the fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, Father, that this would be a time of great enjoyment and, and rest in our faith. But at the same time, Father, we do pray that You would prepare us for battle in the world in which we live. Help us to be good warriors. Help us to be members of this kingdom, recognizing that as sinners we are forgiven. And it is truly a kingdom of forgiven sinners, forgiving others and teaching others of the forgiveness that comes through Christ. Help us, Father, to be bold in this message. Help us to be accurate. And we pray, Father, that Your Word would not return void, but that we would see great things accomplished as the message goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The uh, title for this morning's first uh, message is Establishing a a Starting Place Part 2. Last night we did Establishing a Starting Place Part 1. I want to talk a little bit about Sola Scriptura and how we approach that subject with um, our Christian friends, keeping in mind that the theme of the week is bringing the Reformed faith to our Christian friends. And, uh, of course, if you're talking to an unbeliever, Sola Scriptura isn't even... That's a, it's a different discussion. What I've experienced and uh, in my personal experience in uh, what the things that I've read, uh, just my exposure to Western Christendom, listening to the radio and just being you know, uh, being trying to be aware of what's going on around me, is that there is definitely still a verbal confession of sola scriptura existing among among evangelicals. People will not disagree with that. But theological discussion will often reveal that there is a de facto rejection of the Bible's authority in terms of it being the sole infallible message from God to mankind. Case in Point was a book that came out this last year called uh, Why I Am Not a Calvinist by Walls and Dongels. Anybody read that book? Anybody heard of that book? I thought I'd mentioned mentioned, uh, earlier uh, Bryson and Hunt and what have you, and I just think, in my opinion, those books are 
quite frankly, silly books. I mean, they're just the, the scholarship is just awful. And I will occasionally use them just to show a bad argument to the people in our congregation in an evening class or what have you. Uh, Walls and Dongles, on the other hand, are both uh, professing Christians. They wrote this book. Uh, they both graduated from Notre Dame uh, with degrees in one in philosophy and the other one, I think, in theology. And I have a former student who's got a Ph.D. in metaphysical philosophy from Notre Dame, and we communicate quite a bit, and so he knows these guys. And uh, so, uh, you know, I took an interest in this uh, particular uh, objection of Calvinism, and it was brought to my attention that it was a good argument. And I think it's important to hear the good arguments against what you believe uh, to get rid of the straw man. And I want to know what the strongest arguments are against what I believe to be true. So I read the book a few times, took notes and did a class on it, and I wanted to show our church what the best argument was out there that, uh, against uh, the doctrines of grace as we understand it. And I thought theirs was the best argument. So where did they go with their argument? I mean, where did, where, see, what, what happens with hunting these guys is they just exercise poor exegesis and bad logic. Uh, Bryson's just poor exegesis and bad logic, and it's easy to point out, and it's almost using those resources, it's almost like a straw man. These guys didn't do that. What they did was they went down to the very basic assumption that separates a Calvinist from an an Arminian, and they probably wouldn't view themselves fully as Arminians, or they think Arminianism is misrepresented. I guess one of them is more Arminian, and one's not quite, uh, wouldn't quite call himself an Arminian. And what they basically argue is this, that human responsibility requires a libertarian view of freedom. That's the argument. Now, a lot of our friends make that argument kind of unknowingly. They'll go, well, how can God hold people responsible if he's the one calling all the shots, right? To which, you you know, we always go to Romans 9, right? How can, you know, how can, you know, how can, he, how, can, how can he still find fault? If God is doing all these things, how can he still find fault, is the, is the text in Romans 9, where, you, where when people ask that question, you always go. If God's the one calling all the shots, how can he find fault in me? To which Paul answers, uh, you know, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And I think that's the biblical answer. Matter of fact, I think that's the biblical answer over and over and over again, right? I mean, it's one, a couple of verses in Romans 9, where God is, uh, let me just, did I bring, yeah, hold on a second, because I'm, a, a, a verse I've quoted 800 times, but again, the medication is short-circuiting my thinking pattern, but I'm sure you're all familiar with it. And then, oh, here we go. At least I remember to bring my glasses. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? And then he gets into the potter and the clay argument, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Now, this argument is also made by God himself in Job for for three chapters, where God says, you know what? Now, let me ask some questions. You've been asking me questions. Let me ask you. 
Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth and opened the heavens like a curtain? Where were you when the mount, where are you when the mountain goat gives birth? Where are you when I hold the seas in my hand? Where were you? Basically, his argument, God's argument for his divine and sovereign choices is based upon the fact that he's God. And, and you are not. I mean, it's, it's, that, that is, seems to be the precise place that separates God from man. The fact that, uh, you know, you, you see it sometimes in courtrooms. Uh, uh, when I was in high school, I had a teacher, and um, <clears throat> where's Jim Andrews? I was just talking about it. Is Jim here? I was just, yeah, I was just talking about uh, that teacher who had uh, Gary as a student. And... Um, he, he was talking about a court case where a man had premeditatedly killed somebody and he's walking up, the, the defense attorney is walking up and down to the jurors asking, are you God? Are you God? Are you God? He's trying to keep them from the death penalty, this man from the death penalty, right? So he's appealing, he's saying, are you God? Are you God? Are you God? Are you God? Every, Twelve times to all twelve of them. The assumption in that question, who do you think you are, God, the assumption is that if you were God, you would have the right I like that assumption. I think that's a right assumption to make. When people say, who do you think you are, God? They're assuming that God would have the right to make that decision. Life and death decisions. And I think we see that throughout the scriptures all the time. You look at um, Habakkuk. And uh, I don't know how many of you read Habakkuk lately. I think Habakkuk's a great uh, book. In my response to 9-11, I went to Habakkuk. And if you're not familiar with how it all, if you remember how it unfolds, uh, He's saying, how long, O Lord, will you suffer the sin of your people? And God's response is, not for long, for I'm raising up a people to judge my people. And he's raising up, uh, I believe it was the Chaldeans he raised up, and then Habakkuk's response is, but they're worse than we are. And God's response is, that's okay, I'm going to judge them too for what they do to you. At which point Habakkuk just shuts his mouth and he just praises God. This is a theme we see all throughout Scripture that God uses all things for his own glory, even the wicked for the day of evil. God makes, he uses the sinful choices of evil men and holds men responsible for those things. We see it at the cross, right? We read it in Acts, right? For Herod and Pilate and the Israelites and the Gentiles all did what you predestined for them to do. Does that mean that Herod and Pilate and the Israelites and the, the Gentiles were not culpable for their action because God predestined for them to do that? We all recognize the mysterious nature of human culpability and God's sovereignty. It's just there where we have to throw our hands up and go, Lord, you know, by the way, it's not a contradiction any more than the the Trinity is a contradiction. But it's there we throw our hands up and recognize that if we don't grant that, then we don't, there is no plausible worldview. Nonetheless, that's the biblical answer. The, The biblical answer to human culpability and God's sovereignty is that God holds men responsible for their actions while at the same time God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. That's perspicuously biblical over and over and over in the text. Now, now when I approach this, when I broach the subject, the way I like to do it is to examine all the options because right away people have a problem with that. Then, of course, from an atheistic standpoint, you can't even say things are good or evil. Then you have the different views of God. You have the God that we saw revealed in all these 9-11 caricatures of God, the God who couldn't stop, you know, the, was it 19 terrorists? He, he, couldn't, he couldn't stop them. Then there's, you know, and that wasn't a real popular view, but some people said, you know, God just can't do that. But then the most popular view 
was the fact that God merely allowed it to take place. That was the, you know, that was the uh, kind of Anne Graham view, right? That we've, we as a culture have asked God to leave, and God's a gentleman. <clears throat> You've heard the God is a gentleman. He won't force his way into your life. And so God is a gentleman left our culture, so he just allowed this, this terrible thing to take place. But is that consistent with the biblical understanding of morals and ethics? Does not the Bible clearly indicate that if you have the ability to do something and respond and you don't, you're guilty for being negligent? I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. Aren't we called when we see the uh, innocent being slaughtered to deliver the innocent who are being slaughtered? Are we not culpable for things that we should do and fail to do? How many of us, if we see a child falling from a tree or tottering on the rooftop and we see the child there and we're capable of rescuing the child and we don't, are we not guilty? Isn't it criminal negligence to not do something that you know you can do? And is not criminal negligence something that flows from biblical law? Well, see, that just doesn't work because if God then could have stopped the terrorist and merely allowed it, he himself, by virtue of his own law, would be criminally negligent. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't pass muster in terms of logical reasoning. The only plausible answer, and I'm not just talking about within the realm of, of Orthodox Christianity, but the only plausible answer, period, is to recognize that there is a God in heaven who works out all things after the counsel of his own will, even the things that we would ter- determine to be awful things and terrible things. And God will not apologize when we get to heaven for one second of history. As a matter of fact, when we go to heaven and we're with God and our eyes are open to see it all, we will praise his name for the darkest moment of our lives. Excuse me. Okay, anyways, I think that's a biblical understanding. I think not only is it amazingly comforting to know that the darkest hour of your life is something that when our eyes are truly opened, that God will reveal to us, wow, I'm going to praise God for this someday. I'm going to praise him forever for this awful thing. I mean, you know, he had his own just, holy, and glorious reasons for having ordained that think of your most terrible event in your life. And you're going to praise God for this. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful, comforting thought. And it's very biblical, and it's based upon having a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. Well, these guys arguing against that, and this is my point in terms of a de facto uh, lack of uh, respect for Sola Scriptura, is they don't go to the Scriptures to prove their point. They don't go to the Scriptures to prove that that culpability uh, requires libertarian freedom. That's not the way they argue. The way they argue is, they ask the question on page 105, what could count as proof? They say it's a basic moral intuition. There's nothing more basic than that. That's what they say. That's their argument. They're they're basically presuppositionalists, right? And their presupposition is this, that you you need to have a libertarian view of freedom. That is, that God is not involved in your free choices in order for there to be human culpability. That's their argument. They don't go to the Scriptures to make the argument. Their argument is that it's self-evident. It is its own axiom. Now, I respect the fact that that's their argument, and it's the best argument out there. But what they've revealed is that they are not sola scriptura in terms of determining their worldview. They're, they're, they're Thomistic, or they're rationalistic, or they're something else. There's another term for it. You know, one of them's a philosophy student, so they're probably, you know, more 
you know, along the lines of, of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas in terms of their thinking, as opposed to Paul and Augustine in terms of the, their thinking. So there's a difference there. But that, I think, is something that we have to recognize. These guys are scholars. They claim to be evangelicals. But the, basics, the basis of their objection to the understanding, a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God, is not some verse that they find to demonstrate that culpability requires libertarian view of freedom. It's just something that they assume to be the case. And matter of fact, they even uh, quote um, Gordon Clark in their book, who, say, who challenges them to find one verse in the Bible to prove their position. And of course, Clark was probably dead before these guys, you know, got off the... But, you know, his writings were, were, were basically saying, look, you need to show, biblically, that culpability requires a libertarian view of freedom. You just can't make the bold assertion. You've got to make it biblically. What I have found is many of my Christian friends operate that way. They operate in such a way that they, they believe the Bible so long as it comports with some pre-existent presuppositions they have about reality. But the moment you go in, and this is something that people in our church have brought to my attention, I didn't even realize, is that uh, many of them never had heard the idea that Christian faith is a worldview. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know, and this is just for my own benefit. You know, most of you are raised in the OPC. Have most of you heard the idea that the Christian faith is a worldview? I mean, is that common? Okay. Because most evangelicals don't look at it that way. They look at it as a relationship with Jesus or something like that, which obviously is, it, it is that, right? But it's a worldview. It changes everything. I had a pastor in my house, and we were, had a little disagreement about what repentance was. He said, it's metanoia. It's a changing of the mind. It's not the changing of behavior. It's the changing of the mind. Repentance doesn't mean that the word repentance is metanoia in the Greek. It doesn't mean you change your behavior. It just means you change the way you think about Jesus. Matter of fact, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we went out witnessing, and a guy was just trying to get a guy to pray the sinner's prayer, and the guy was almost going to punch him. He's like, get away from me. And I'm going, this guy doesn't want to pray. He goes, Look, he goes, I'm, he goes <clears throat> we're going to get beat up. He was right here in San Bernardino someplace. And, he, and I go, the guy doesn't want to pray the sinner's prayer. He goes, look, Paul, I don't believe in lordship salvation. He really felt like if he could get the guy to pray the sinner's prayer, the guy would be saved, even though he wasn't. He just, he just wanted the guy to kind of have a momentary religious experience and a momentary acquiescence to pray the prayer. And I, but what we have to understand is that if you change your mind about Jesus, <clears throat> you've changed your mind about everything. You've changed your mind about who you are, who God is, how the world functions, what is right, what is wrong. Everything needs to change. But modern evangelicalism doesn't work that way. They have Jesus as kind of a category in their lives. And this category doesn't necessarily affect the way they parent, the way they vote, the way they function in society. It doesn't affect sometimes their philosophy. It doesn't affect the way they might approach the sciences and what have you. And I think this is an important thing for us to kind of recognize. You might be thinking to yourself, that's crazy. That's not so. I find that um, my wife was raised in a pretty um, sound conservative Lutheran church. Went to Concordia. Her father is an elder in a Lutheran church. And, uh, you know, I mean, so she's been a pretty, you know, I, you know we've, I always feel like Luther. I have a lot of respect for Luther. And I, like I tell my Lutheran friends, if he lived another hundred years, he would have been a Presbyterian, you know. <clears throat> But I always say these kinds of things, and she's like, are you, you know, she doesn't actually, but she'll kind of almost doubt. Are you saying that these people are saying this and that out there? And I'm like, yeah, that's what's believed out there. 
And uh, she kind of, she wasn't poo-pooing me, but it was like, come on, you know, overstating the issue, until she went to one of my graduation ceremonies at Biola or Talbot. And a guy got up there who was the president of Campus Crusade for Christ and he gave the, you know, the, the graduation speech, and she was almost in tears at the amazingly bad theology that was being presented. I mean, it affected her emotionally. My wife usually doesn't function all super... She was just like, I can't believe what's being said here. Friends, believe it. That what's out there and what is kind of uh, being believed in terms of the Christian faith is an amazing thing. It's a sad thing. And what I want, you know, here in my part two of establishing a starting place, what I want to do is uh, not only help us to be informed, but I think there's an, an argument, if I can call it that. And by the way, uh, if you're in debate or even if you're in theological circles, you can use the word argument and you understand what it means. You know, it's a good word. Argument is a good word. But for a lot of people, it, they, they, they hear argument and they think fight and they think dysfunctional childhood and they don't want to argue. Okay. So you almost have to not use that word. You know, you've got to find another word in terms of you know, bringing your point to bear. But I think this is an argument that needs to be made, an argument of the Bible. And I'm gonna, what I want to do here is give a, a brief sola scriptura argument that you might want to... Um, you know, to take hold of and, uh, and utilize in your discussion. Because I think if you don't really have a civil scriptural argument, you're, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of the discussion. They really need to be sola scriptura. So my question here is, why believe the Bible? Why should we believe it? Now, I'd argue that sola scriptura is presuppositional. I don't, I don't know if you realize that Within our denomination, I know when I was tested, one of the tests was an apologetics test, and they just wanted to make sure that I was presuppositional, which I was. And I'm not sure if you know the difference between evidentialist and classical and presuppositional apologetics, but in the bottom line is uh, everybody, everybody's presuppositional. Okay, I said that thing, there are, two, there are two types of Christians, those who are confessional and those who admit they're confessional. There are two types of apologists, those who are presuppositionalists and those who admit they're presuppositionalists, because we all have a basic presupposition. We all do. And I think that is something that really needs to be brought. I know for me, when I discovered that, that was really an eye-opener, and I think our friends need to hear that they, they have some basic assumptions that they bring to their thought process. So why do we believe the, the, the Bible? What I want to do is go over something I did uh, when I was at one of my non-reformed seminaries, I had a lot of, I really enjoyed going to my non-reformed seminaries because I got to engage with people who disagreed with me. And it was always, I had rules for myself. You know, I'd, I'd ask one question and I'd allow one rejoinder. And then I would just leave it, you know. And then we'd have a lot of discussions, you know, at the, you know in the snack room afterwards and what have you. And, uh, and, but I got to write papers that were just blatantly reformed and, if, you know, in hopes of affecting my professors and the students. And it was just a good, this was a paper I did on, what, on the, the, the apologetic of the Westminster divines that I gave to a professor of mine who it just, I think, caught him off guard. And I, what I want to do, and I think they have a very good apologetic for why we should believe the Bible and what I want to do is kind of go through that with you. Maybe some of you have already thought this out, but I think it's a good, it's good reasoning. How did the Westminster divines justify their assertion that the scriptures are the word of God? What was their argumentation? You know, you think about it. You've got 121 guys or so, off and on, more or less, meeting in a room for 
you know, four or five, six years, and they want to make their first argument. And this is right at the beginning, right? Chapter 1, paragraph 4. The Bible speaks authoritatively and so deserves to be believed and obeyed. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but completely on God, its author, who is himself truth. The Bible, therefore, is to be accepted as true because it is the word of God. Now, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you the shortened version, my, the Reader's Digest version of my paper, because it was like 18 pages long, so I'm leaving a lot of stuff out. But this sounds very circular to me, does it not? The Bible is to be accepted because, because it is the Word of God. We know it is the Word of God because it says it is. <clears throat> Perhaps circularity was not something that the divines of Westminster sought to hide from. In some form, it seems that circularity is practiced by everybody, especially when you're arguing ultimate world views. Uh, Robert Prius, does that sound familiar? Am I pronouncing that right? Because I've only read it and I've never heard it. Preuss, Dr. Uh, Robert D. Preuss, in his explanation. See, that's the one thing that you have at an OPC uh, camp that you don't have other places. Like, you probably have lunch with him, right, Don? (laughs) He's like... Yeah, last <laughs> He states this in, um, in this, the book Inerrancy, which came out a number of years back. All sciences argue from the principles, argue, all science argue from principles and do not try to prove their principles. This is also with theology, whose principles, or principia, are the articles of faith. In philosophy, the lower sciences cannot dispute or prove the principles of a higher science. Sacred scripture offers the highest science. In other words, the empiricist, assuming his position to be soundest, you know, the scientist, I only believe in what I see kind of guy, uh, uses empiricism to argue the truth of his position. The rationalist, you know, who's trying to work it out intellectually with his own thinking, does the same. If someone believes their worldview to be true, And the soundest explanation of reality, it is only reasonable for them to make the arguments for their worldview using the principles of their worldview. Why would anybody abandon what they believe to be the soundest principles available for the development of their argument? Preuss also states, the philosopher will, for instance, work out proofs for the existence of God, but only with the presupposition that he already believes in God. He does not make himself temporarily an atheist. I can't tell you how important I think this point is. That, that, because it's such a, uh, you know, most people are not epistemologically self-conscious. In other words, they don't know why they know what they know. When you begin to engage in this conversation, you begin to get people to really think about why they know what they know. Walls and dongles, they need to know, why do you know that culpability requires a libertarian view of freedom? Why is that true? Why do you think that's the case? You're just asserting it. You need more than an assertion. You need to demonstrate that it is an ultimate truth. Now, if you're going to make it an ultimate truth, where does that come from? But from the mouth of God. And where do we get our information in terms of the mouth of God? But from the Holy Scriptures. Neutrality. Something can be said about, I think, the, the, you know, what might be called the myth of neutrality. You see, if, if Christians view the atheist as wrong and foolish, why would they adopt the atheistic worldview as a starting point for their argumentation? And that's where we see what you might call the modern myth of neutrality. I think G.I. Williamson makes an interesting point here. 
And this is from his commentary on the Westminster Confession. He writes, Sometimes Protestants have unwittingly done this too, yet it's sought to find a neutral place. I, I, I think that's a really dangerous kind of approach to have. I, I think we need to boldly tell the truth. I, you know, I, I, it's no secret when I went to Presbury that, I, that I've, and I'm going to quote him here in just a second, that I was a big fan. I've never met him, but I was a big fan of uh, Dr. Bonson. I really enjoyed him, and I really enjoyed his debates. And uh, one of the things I liked about his debates is he was just not political at all in his debates. And you know, in a lot of debates, a lot of people would, they hear a hard question, and they know it's not going to sound good when they answer yes or no, uh, will dance around it. He never did that. He'd, he'd come up right out. Somebody would say, well, so do you believe that God created the world intending to send people to hell? Yes. Just, you know, and it's almost like, you know, and I appreciated the honesty there. And there was no, like, myth of neutrality. It was, you know, and, you know, some people might argue that sometimes he was a little rougher than he had to be. But I'll tell you, as a student, I really appreciated uh, that method. Sometimes Protestants have un- unwittingly done this, too. It, uh, it has often happened in the dealings with, Christian, uh, with Christians with unbelievers. The unbeliever claims that he sees nothing in the Bible to demand belief that it is the word of God. And the believer has all too often, in effect, granted that the unbeliever has some justification for his position. The believer may even imagine that he can find a neutral starting point at which he and the unbeliever are in agreement. Then, it is thought, a series of arguments can be erected on the neutral starting point in which, uh, which, in the end, might possibly prove that the Bible is the Word of God, or perhaps equally well that it is not. Thus, human reason, or archaeology, or history, etc., may be made the starting point, and unconsciously the starting point becomes the higher authority before which, God, before which judgment bar God must pass muster. This, in effect, makes the authority higher than the authority of God, and this cannot be done. Did you understand that quote? you understand what he's saying there? You find this neutral place, and then you start building your argument, like this discursive argument. It's an evidential approach. You know, Romans 1 is obviously an amazing passage in Scripture. And I utilize, my, my anthropology comes from Romans 1. And that anthropology is, I think you know. I'm convinced that you know that there is a God. So I'm not going to grant it when you say that you don't. Now, some people go, oh, that's ivory tower argumentation. You know, you're in your tower, and they're in their tower, and you never come down and have a discussion. Well, we can shout from tower to tower. That doesn't matter. We don't have to come down. You know, we'll shout nicely. But I have personally seen this to be quite effective. Not that pragmatism should be our, you know, our goal. But I, I, there's a young man who I witnessed to for a while, and, and uh, he, he ended up coming to the pub, and now uh, he's going to church, and... Uh, not coming to our church, but he's going, you know, his wife, you know, are going to, I did his wedding, and it's, you know, it's just turned out to be a neat thing. But years ago, you know, we're, we're talking, and the discussion was, he was a teacher, and we had this kind of homosexual teacher, you know, discussion, you know, shouldn't they have all the rights? So we're having this discussion. And I, you know, and, it, and I always argue presuppositionally, and I'm just going, well, yeah, I think it's the word of God, and blah, 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 and he's going, well, and, I go, and he's giving me, and I'm like, he's, I'm giving a negative apologetic, because he's giving me his reasonings, and I'm like, why would I believe that? Or why is that authoritative? You know, and, it's, and for me, the argument is us, because you know what? It's the will of God. I think the will of God is the best, and it's the best thing for man. It's the best thing for the world, and, and you know, I'm not going to give up on that. And he, he made this comment to me, and he goes, well, I guess I just don't believe in God, as if he had me in a corner. 
And I said, well, I think you do. Now, I didn't think you had, I didn't think you have a believing faith, but if I'm reading Romans 1 right, you believe there's a God, but you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I just think you do. I just think you're denying something you know to be true. And, he, and his comment was, okay, I've got to go on my run now. And he went, we were at the beach, and he just took off running. But I think, that is, I think that's very compelling. You know, and again, I, you know, I, think it was, it was, I think it was Dr. Bonson who made the comment that when you're talking to crazy people, you don't talk crazy talk to them, right? You, t- you, tell, you talk sanely to them in hopes that somehow the, the sane propositions are going to find a place in their mind. And take root. We recognize this only happens by the grace of God. But you don't change. You know, if you have, you have the authority of God, right? You know, it's like if you had a gun, right? And, you, and it's got bullets in it. And you're the, you're the robber, right? And you walk in and you go, give me your money. And the guy, if the guy at the counter says, look, I don't really acknowledge the authority of your gun. Do you go, okay, well, do you have another weapon in here that I can borrow? Yeah. No, you shoot the guy. You know, you, know, you, you, you don't pull back. And I think we all, we all too often do that. I think we, we need to know what our worldview is. We need to know that it's authoritative, that it's absolute, and not play this game. And, I, and our Christian friends need to do the same because it, it not only breeds you know, a, a poor evangelism, but it breeds a poor understanding in terms of our doctrine. That, all that stuff needs to be abandoned and replaced. That we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's, that's a message to Christians. Bonson actually equated this with immorality. Talking about compromise or neutrality, Bonson writes, no, no such compromise is even possible. No man is able to serve two lords. It should come as no surprise that in a world where all things have been created by Christ, Colossians 1.16, and are carried along by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, and where all knowledge is therefore deposited in him who is the truth, Colossians 2.3, uh, John 4.16, 14.6, and who must be Lord over all thinking, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world, maketh himself an enemy of God, James 4.4. 4. According to Bonson and others, to approach the defense of the scriptures as if they are not the primary authority on earth is dishonest. This is not to say that I'm not allowed to view things hypothetically. For example, I can hypothesize and, and, you know, and say something, let's say, quote, let's say for a moment there is no God. I can hypothesize. Okay, let's grant your position for a second, right? I'm going to answer the fool according to his folly. Right? What, that's an interesting passage, isn't it, in Proverbs? You know, answer the fool according to his folly that he may not be wise in his own eyes. Do not answer the fool according to his folly that you may not be like him. That's not a contradiction. I, I'll go, okay, let's see if your worldview works. Okay, let's see if I, okay, you know, you know, I don't believe anything I don't see. Okay, let's work with that. I don't believe anything I don't see either. Let's, we're all together on this. So that statement, I don't believe anything that I don't see. Can you see that? <laughs> oh, I can't see that. Okay, well, let's move on to a new worldview. That doesn't work. But what I'm not going to do then is use his method to prove my worldview, right? I'm not going to be like him. I might use his worldview temporarily to show him that his worldview is false, but I'm not going to imitate his worldview, which is what the evidentialist does. It's what the rationalist does. It's what walls and dongles were doing. They were arguing in such a way that a completely atheistic philosopher would agree with basic assumptions that they're making based upon what they called common grace. What they called, what they somehow extrapolated from being made in the image of God. I remember being at a talk one time, J.P. Moreland. Anybody heard of J.P. Moreland? 
And, uh, you know, we used to have lunch together. And, we t- I, you know, I, he's a smart guy. He's kind of gone in a weird direction. I don't know if you've heard it lately. He's become very, very charismatic. But he was kind of like a latent charismatic anyway, with follower of um, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard, you know, heard of Dallas Willard. He wrote the, these books on the discipline. Very, very, um, very Romish, quite frankly, in the way they approach their faith. Anyways, he's a smart guy nonetheless, but, uh, you know, a hardcore evidentialist. And I remember uh, I was at a lecture he was giving, and um, <clears throat> he, I forget exactly what he was saying, but he defined truth. I remember that. He defined truth uh, and was kind of an Aristotelian view of truth. Truth is justifiable. Knowledge, knowledge is justifiable true belief. You've heard that statement, right? Knowledge is justifiable true belief. That's a basic philosophical statement. If you know something, it's got to be justifiably true. You, otherwise, you don't really know it. You might, think it's, you might think it's true, but you don't really know it's true. Right? So that was his basic, that's what he started the lecture with. Knowledge is justifiable true belief. In other words, if you know something, it must be true. Right? Otherwise, you don't really know it. You might think it's the case, but you don't really know for sure that it's the case. You, you might have faith that it's the case, but in order for me to actually know something... What I know must be true. Otherwise, I don't really know it. Is that, are you following that? Does that make sense? Okay. So then he gives his argument. He basically gives a, just a strong evidential argument for the existence of God. I raise my hand. I go, Let me, uh, Dr. Moreland, is it possible that God doesn't exist? And he said, yes, that's possible. I go, so how do you justify the Apostle Paul's comment in Romans 1 that says all men know there's a God? and are without excuse. And he said, well, culpability doesn't require absolute certainty. I go, but yeah, but the Apostle Paul says there is no excuse. He doesn't say there's a bad excuse. He says there's no excuse. That's where that thinking leads. See, the thinking leads to probability. There's probably a God. But I can't say for certain that there's a God. But if, but if the Apostle Paul is right, and we know there's a God, even by his definition that knowledge is justifiable true belief, if I know there's a God, there must be a God. So who, guess who's mistaken in this whole uh, you know, uh, exchange? The Apostle Paul must be mistaken. Because the Apostle Paul is telling me, you know there's a God. And if the Apostle Paul understands you know, Aristotle, and I don't mean to go with Aristotle, I think it's very biblical, I think it's a, I'll get to that in a second, but I'm just using his own reasoning, right? If the Apostle Paul tells me I know something, and if I know something, it must be true, therefore the Apostle Paul must be mistaken if your answer is correct, that there may be no God. You understand the argument? You understand where this goes? You understand it's just a deplorable um, uh, philosophical approach to the Christian faith. And it doesn't just affect our conversation with unbelievers. It affects theology. That's why I think JP feels perfectly comfortable becoming a charismatic. Because he just doesn't, he doesn't think that way. He doesn't view that way. In one of his most recent books, his argument, because he's a full-on Arminian, and I, don't get me wrrong, I mean, I like JP and he likes me. You know, and where's, where's, there's a nice relationship here. But, I, you know, and Greg Kokel, who I've known, ever heard Greg Kokel? He's an apologist. Greg and I have known each other. He has a radio show. We've known each other for 30 years. And Greg's kind of, you know, was really close with JP, and he's also distanced himself. But in his latest book, in order to justify his Arminianism, he said that the will of man... Now, some of you will be shocked at this, and some of you may not even think of it as anything, but when I heard it, I thought, oh, my goodness. The will of man. 
is the unmoved mover. Now, historically, who is the unmoved mover, at least according to philosophers? Yeah, God. But in order for the whole culpability thing to take place, my will needs to be the starting point of reality. Now, that to me is following that theology to its logical conclusion, and you would think at some point, you know, this would happen. You know what I mean? You think at some point you go, okay, I'm getting this wrong. But they don't. They're following it through to the point where it's so far outside, I would argue, of uh, Orthodox Christianity. I think a successful presentation of these issues will provide strength in the following popular theological camps. What I just said, I think, I hope, that we all have it soundly uh, in our minds what we're talking about here. That a lot of bad theology comes from poor epistemology and and a de facto rejection of sola scriptura in terms of the way we ought to view all things. Now, uh, I'm, I, I can never tell what time I'm supposed to start in end. I have 20? Okay. If I pass out, just pick me up and prop me up and move my mouth for me like Winchell Mahoney. All right. Now, I think if you, get, if, if you have this, you know, again, half the battle is knowing it. The other half is presenting it, right? If we have this, you know, squarely before us, I think it's very helpful in our discussion about the gifts of the Spirit versus unmediated unmediated information from God. There's a lot of that. The gifts of the Spirit. I mean, we're all charismatics in a sense, right? I mean, we all believe in the charisma, that uh, the charismata, that we all believe that there are gifts that continue perennially. It's just what you'd call the sign gifts, right? That we believe, if you're a cessationist, that you believe that those sign gifts, which interestingly enough, they're called sign gifts because they were a sign. I think they were a sign of an event. They were a sign of the end of the Old Covenant and a sign of the beginning of the New Covenant, which is why I think those, I mean, if you look at uh, and cross-reference 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 with Deuteronomy, I believe it's Deuteronomy uh, 28 or Isaiah 28. You see, I think it's Isaiah 28. You see that the tongues is a prophecy of something that was going to happen, which brought the judgment of the Old Covenant and the end of the Old Covenant and the establishment of the New Covenant. That's why they're called sign gifts. Be that as it may, I think we can help charismatics and those influenced by them if we understand this kind of an epistemology or this kind of understanding of our starting place of our discussion. We had a lady, for example, years ago in our church who had, I would have to say, she had haunting insight. You know, I mean, she had a spiritual, I don't know what spiritual gifts she had and how it worked, but I mean, she definitely had a discernment that was beyond what I had in terms of her ability to perceive. I mean, she was very gifted, I think, in that way. I mean, she'd walk into a room and she would know, like, if somebody was in a bad mood or hurt or whatever. She just was really good at that, you know, and... You know, whether it was some type of special gift from God or whatever. But the point, the issue here was that she began to view this gift she had, this talent she had, as unmediated divine messages that she was getting from God. As a matter of fact, the reason they left their church was because her husband pointed out to me that my assertion that God no longer speaks the way he spoke to Samuel is really wrong. That God is speaking, you know, to his wife that way. And I, what I think happened was, I think, she had a, I think she had a real gift. But I think she misinterpreted her own gift to thinking that, and not only that, other people were misinterpreting it as well. All of a sudden, she became like this central focus. I just had um, a guy who I, I went to college with who just became, I don't think he just became, but I just reconnected with him, 
who's a Calvary Chapel pastor down in Orange County. Funny guy, a guy who I shared the Lord with in high school, and he's a Calvary Chapel pastor. And uh, all of a sudden, I got, we, t- we talked, and I got on his email thing, his newsletter. <clears throat> and he's just out there. I mean, he's got a healing ministry, and he's, I'm talking, you know, he wrote this thing, and I called him, and I go, look, I need to talk to you about, I mean, if you're interested, I need to talk to you about your theology. And he called me back, and I was always a little older than him, and so he still looks at me as like kind of a mentor, you know. And he's telling me, you know, he goes, people are coming and I'm praying for them and they're getting healed and we've got this healing ministry and stuff. And I go, well, you know, Rick, what happens when you lay your hands on somebody and they don't get healed? What happens then? I go, you know, if you think you have the apostolic power to heal somebody, when, the, when Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus get up and walk, there was no chance that that guy wasn't going to get up and walk. He wasn't hoping he was going to get up and walk. He didn't even pray for him to get up and walk. He just said, get up and walk. I go, are you saying you have that power, that authority? And he's, well, no, not really. Matter of fact, I'm a little uncomfortable with the way people are perceiving me because they're coming and they want me to lay hands on them. And so this whole thing, you know, so I got his address and guess what I'm sending him? The 33 tapes on the Westminster Confession. And he's, all, and he's quite interested in hearing it because he also recognized that he has, a, he has an incoherent uh, theology. But I think it's a matter of, of, of helping, not completely dismissing, you know, what God is maybe doing in a person's life. Maybe he does have a, a tender heart for the people who are hurting and in pain and in sorrow. But, uh, you know, let's redefine, let's define this within the boundaries of biblical Christianity. And not give yourself a role or a place of apostolic authority, friend, that, that's going to end up to be amazingly destructive. So when I deal with my charismatic friends, when I try to bring them to this type of biblical presuppositionalism in terms of the way we view the world, what I also try to do is help them, is, and I think this is really important, not just completely diss their whole Christian worldview, right? Not, not diss their whole Christian experience, I should say, but help them redefine it. Go, you know what, what, let's talk about what that actually might be. Do we believe that God still heals people? Yes. Do we believe that we, we pray for people? I go, but it's different than what was happening by the hand of Jesus and what he conferred onto his apostles. It's different. You've got to acknowledge that. And if you don't acknowledge that, there's a lot of trouble here. And he, you know what? He got it. He understood it. But I wonder if I called him in two years from now, if he would have been so immersed in it that he would have turned into Fred Price. And all of a sudden, you know, it's amazing where people go. You know Fred Price, right? Okay. Uh, Robert Tilton. Turned into Robert Tilton. No? <laughs> Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn? Okay. He, what if he turned into Benny Hinn? You guys really don't know what's going on out there, do you? <laughs> Robert, nobody knows Robert Tilton. Robert Tilton brought in like $100 million. How, no, seriously, how many people have heard of Robert Tilton? Okay. Not that I'm all thrilled that you've heard of them. <laughs> I mean, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. You ever watch him? As a matter of fact, I heard an interview of somebody with, you know, who knew him as a kid and said that they used to do that, like Saturday Night Live skits. And he'd pretend to be an evangelist. And he just, it's amazing to me. I mean, it's a sad testimony. I, oh, I just had a political thought that I... <laughs> all right, I'm going to say it. I don't care. I feel like the people, <laughs> all right, and we're all friends, right? 
you turn the tape off here. You know, you can just you might have to you don't have to turn it off, but you might have to edit this. I feel like the same people who send money to these televangelists are the people who voted for Clinton in the second term. And I, you know, and I, I don't want to sound overly political or mean, and I know, you know, Jesus wasn't a Republican and all that stuff. But I look at that and I think to myself, what are we thinking? How, 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 does it, can nobody tell what's going on? I mean, it's like the madness. You know, and I, I look at that and I'm looking at the OPC and I'm thinking, you know what, this is so sound and this is so good and this is so right. You know, we're trying to find the second nickel to rub together with the first nickel. While these guys are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're the first ones to China. And they're the first ones to Russia. No wonder Russia and China doesn't want us. Because they're financing all the trips and what have you. Anyway, I think it's a matter of helping people redefine their position and not completely dissing it and keep them from going down that path. And it can be tricky, you know. Because I remember we, we had a lady in our church. She has since passed away. And I was teaching a class on basically, it wasn't really a class on cessationism, but, you know, it, was, it, it included that. And she had just become a member, and she was the sweetest lady, and she raised her hand, and she goes, but you know what, I really remember, and this is, imagine this in a room full of people, you know, this is a sweet lady, and she raises her hand. I remember, and her husband was, my, I remember God clearly telling me that my husband was going to die in World War II in a fight, well, you know, in a fighter. And he went off, and he died in the fighter, and God so comforted me by telling me, right? Are you saying that God didn't tell me that? What a heel, right? What a heel. I, how do I avoid, like, sorry, that wasn't valid. Next question. How do you approach that, you know? And I think it's a matter of, you know, I mean, the way I approach that was like, well, you know what, I think God is, God is a tenderhearted, you know, God is tenderhearted and he extends mercy. And I don't doubt that in some way God was perhaps preparing you to handle what was going to happen. I'm not going to doubt that. But I don't think it's the same as the way God spoke to Paul. I just think it's different. You see, I didn't want to completely dismiss her experience, but I needed to help her recognize that it's not the same thing. And that's a, it's a tricky thing, especially I can't think of, you know, that, by the way, when you're talking to people about this, you're, you're invading the most intimate part of their life. It's their touch point with God. And you're saying, sorry, it's not. And I think it's a really delicate issue. And so it's not a matter of just going in and saying, you know what, it's all invalid. It's a matter of going, yes, there is a God, and there is a God who interacts with His people, but we need to redefine it. And God has interacted with you, and I don't doubt it. But we have to make the distinction between the way God spoke to His prophets and His apostles and the way God speaks with us today, which is through His Word and through providence and through the life that we have, requiring us to have wisdom and what have you. I think it's a matter of kind of helping people make that, make that distinction. So instead of uh, denying their experience, you want to help them redefine their experience. Quite frankly, most charismatics aren't willing to place their prophecies on the same level as Scripture. They just aren't. And if they are... Um, really, you've, you've reached the Robert Tilton, Benny Hinn person. And at that point, it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult thing. I, um, I th- I'm going to finish with this thought, because I know I'm, I'm running out here. I did a radio show one time, 
And uh, I have my question. It's great when you can do Christian radio because you have the whole, you, you, you own a little Barna thing, right? You just call it, you, know, you go, okay, how many of you? And people call in and you get all these responses. I asked the question uh, when I did this radio program, what must I do in order to get what the charismatics have? What, what do I have to do? I go, because I don't have prophecies, and I don't have the word of knowledge, and I don't speak in tongues. I don't have any of that, and I've been a Christian for 30-something years. And it's not like I haven't sought it. Maybe at that Jesus movement time, I remember really thinking, okay, if, there, if God's handing this stuff out, I want some of it. And I prayed for it earnestly. But I wouldn't do some of the things that people were saying to do, like start counting backwards from 100, right, to get the tongues. 199, 98, oh, hi. That, that was... I mean, I'm not making that up. I mean, that's a method that they would use to get you to kind of... Prime the, prime the pump of the, of the tongues, you know, if it wasn't happening for you. But here, was the, here were the answers that I, that I got, real briefly. The answers generally had to do with reaching a level of righteousness or pietism. Right? What you need to do is you need to pray more. You need to get rid of some things in your life. You need to develop, you know, it was basically, you need to become either more pious or you need to become more righteous. Now, they didn't say it that way. But I would respond that way, and I'd say, so what you're saying is, if I pray as much as you pray, you see, because nobody wants to hear it that way, right? So if I, if I pray as much as you pray, I'll get that gift? Well, no, I'm just saying, you know, and are you saying that if I am as righteous as you are, I'll get the gift? And see, nobody wants to recognize that what they're saying is, I have the gift because I've reached a level of piety and righteousness that you haven't reached. But is that the way it works? Because when I read of the Holy Spirit falling on people in Acts, I don't see any prerequisite at all. They, they, you know, what, they didn't even know. Remember the followers of John? They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Right? We see Peter's preaching and what happens? Did they, did they go out and have long, quiet times first? Did they go out and have solitude? Did they give up their television sets? They, no. Peter's preaching what happens? The Holy Spirit just falls on them. So the whole idea that I have to jump through some hoops in order to receive what the Bible seems to indicate people were receiving simply by the hearing of the message and by the power and the grace of God, quite frankly, friends, is grotesquely unbiblical. And it's also amazing, is it not, that the doctrinal and pietistic shortcomings of the great theologians like Martin Luther and Calvin and Knox and Warfield, not to mention, uh, you just go through Fox's Book of Martyrs, and here you have people who were knowledgeable enough, pious enough, righteous enough to go to flames for their death, and yet they didn't receive that? And yet at the same time, you have the charismatic Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians all having the Holy Spirit poured out upon them in this modern culture. Inevitably, there is an assertion of a tiered movement of the Holy Spirit. That's what they'll eventually say. They'll just go, well, it's not the same level of inspiration that Paul had, but it's a different level. And I think it needs to be pointed out to our friends that if it's the Word of God, it is ultimate in authority, and the canon is still open. This logical necessity, friends, will only be productive if one views logic as part of the exegetical equation, and if the first part of what I just talked about is brought into and and accepted, and that is that the sola scriptura, in its purest sense, is the rules of engagement. If you don't have that, then the rest of the conversation is not going to work. All right, why don't we go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll uh, um, finish this in uh, 15 minutes. All right, let's just take a quick break.